I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for joining me. And I guess it may well be that you're able to listen to the podcast while you're on your holidays at the beach, wherever you're relaxing. It's certainly been fantastic weather here so far in the UK. So I hope you're enjoying it where you are too. Today, I'm delighted to be chatting to Dr. Rick Cromie, and he's the best-selling author, international speaker, cultural historian, professor and pastor. His mission is to help people interpret history, navigate culture and explore faith to create trusted and transformative change. He's authored over a dozen books, including his most recent work titled Gen Tech, an American story of technology, change and who we really are. Now, Rick has very kindly offered a free e-copy of this book and details are in the show notes of this episode. Or if you want to go to our website, educationonfire.com, you can click through and search for Dr. Rick Cromie and all those details will pop up. Now, Rick is able to support you in many ways if you're related to education. And so the best way to find out everything that you need to know is to go to his website, which is rickcromie.com. Now, there's some really great, insightful information and wisdom in this episode. So I really hope you enjoy this. My conversation with Dr. Rick Cromie. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Far podcast. I know that your life is multifaceted in, in terms of um, being an author, being a pastor, professor, you know, there, there's a whole range there. So sort of take us through that sort of that broadness in how your sort of day to day life looks uh, on any given week. Wow. Well, first of all, Mark, thanks for having me on your your wonderful podcast. And hello to everyone out there in podcast land as we uh, uh, share uh, our share together here for the next uh, several minutes. Uh, yeah, I'm I've actually I'm a professor. Uh, I'm an educator. I'm a trainer. There's a lot of different facets to my educational career. Uh, I, you know, I, I started out uh, in the in the area of church, the church culture. I was a pastor for many years, a youth, working with youth in particular, and then moved into teaching people about how to be youth pastors and and directors and such. So that's kind of where where I was at. But Christian education was, uh, you know, classically the here in America we call it Sunday school. I don't know what it's like over there in the UK and yeah. other, but you know, the idea of Sunday school. I taught basically how do you become a good Sunday school teacher. So I worked within that that particular culture. But uh, about 10, 15 years ago, I started to shift. And uh, I work now more in the nonprofit area here in America. I've got uh, an educational services, MANA educational services that I, I'm the president and uh, founder of. And I, I, I work that. And I just basically help uh, organizations, schools, uh, businesses, and, and churches still uh, in their leadership development, teacher development, parent uh, development as well. And one of the things that really struck me when I was sort of getting ready for this conversation was the fact that there's a very 
big feeling about that sort of positiveness uh, of everything that goes on your sort of positive education positive parenting positive teaching mm-hmm. um just take me into that that philosophy and, and why that's so important for you well it, it, it's really the heartbeat message that i bring to educators let's just we'll just keep this in the realm of education uh with your with your audience uh my heartbeat message is we have got to get back to more positive and productive solutions to the education environment. Uh, and that, that's not just uh, in the classroom, but really even how we administrate a school and how we direct a school and even more broader than that, how we view learning in particular. So I have, um, I have a theory uh, that I, I promote. Uh, it's a positive uh, uh, you know, motivational theory. It's, it's, it's rooted to meeting the actual needs of a human being, or in this case, the actual needs of teenagers or children, whoever you're teaching. It is, um, it's rooted to uh, positive discipline, positive classroom management as well, uh, where we're not reacting, we're being more proactive. Uh, we are seeing the children as, as human beings. You know, we're treating them less like dogs and and animals and using uh, behavioral modification, which is very common in the educational world, and really taking more of a holistic, uh, organic approach, a more humane approach to looking at uh, our students. And I've done that for years. I mean, it, it, it was already a shift that was going on, obviously coming out of my pastoral, uh, biblical, you know, church world, there was a bit of that, that that already bubbling, if you will. But as I worked more and more with students, and I became a professor back in 1992, and I worked for 15 years actually in the classroom, and I found that philosophy just starting to to emerge that I saw my students as learners. And my job wasn't to go into that class and basically tell them everything I, I knew. It was about, in the end, evaluating and seeing how much they had They had changed as a result of what I was teaching. To me, that's the most bottom line definition of of teaching, the act of teaching. Teaching and learning, they're they're really similar. Teaching and learning is all about change, a change cognitively, a change in the effective, what we value, what we believe, what we feel, and ultimately a change in our lifestyle or a skill set, something that we do, you know, so that that no feel do is is really the three domains of, of the learning process. And so I, I tend to focus more upon the learner. Are they learning as opposed to am I teaching? Because when I focus upon am I teaching, a lot of teachers hear that is, am I talking? Am I communicating? And that's, this is maybe, I'll give you a, a little insight here from the Old Testament that I always th- find interesting. In the, in the biblical Hebrew, the word for learn and teach are actually rooted to the same word. They have different suffix and a prefix as far as the grammar of it goes, but it's the same word. In other words, to learn is to teach, and to teach is to learn. And when you come to that, that's a mind-blowing concept. Uh, You know, here in America, uh, those of us who are older, we had grandparents who used to say to us when we messed up, they would say something like, well, that will learn you. And what they meant by that is, well, you're going to learn a lesson out of that. You're going to, this is a teaching moment for you. And that's exactly what teaching is, Mark. I I believe it comes down to that. So everything flows from that positive view 
that we're not um, we're not made to be. It's not about uh, the negative sides. It's not looking at whether a student will misbehave because they will misbehave. It's not looking at how they're going to be disengaged because they will disengage. It's looking at it more from a positive view that I can change all of those things. All the environments that create negativity and misbehavior and problems and obstacles in the learning process, I can correct as a teacher. I can shift and change and create better environments. And many teachers just have never really dealt with that. They tend to be more reactive, more, uh, you know, back on their heels, more, you know, let's, you know, you have to follow me. You, you know, you have to be co- totally in my box before I think you're actually learning. When truth is a lot of times they're learning things way outside the boxes that we uh, we create for them and do you think that's uh that's to do with time do you think it's that kind of i've got to plan my lesson so therefore i've got to get from a to b to prove i've done that or you know th- th- there's a test at the end of the term or there's this or that and so it's like if i don't keep the the focus on here and i don't drive it my way it could go very interestingly sidewards, but not something which I can control. And therefore I've got to then, you know, explain that to somebody else. Do you think sort of time is oh. the biggest factor? Uh, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you pull back the, the classroom uh, situation, you then start to see the, the, the theory, the philosophy of the whole school itself. And many administrations are driven by the same type of pressures. You know, uh, the, you know, here in America, you, you know, you've got to you've got to teach to the test because that's where the money's at. If your students are not performing well, then you lose money from the funding of the different things that are going on. And, you know, that's that's just not good. And I've always been, um, you know, Jonathan Kozel. I don't know if you're familiar with that author's name, but he wrote a book called Savage Inequalities. And it must be probably 20, 25 years ago. But even back in, in the 1990s, he recognized in American education anyway, which is connected. The funding is always connected to the property taxes of the community. So if you've got a poor community, you got less money going to schools. If you've got a rich community, you got a whole lot more money going to the schools. And therefore, they have better facilities. They have better resources. They have better teachers because they can hire better teachers. Whereas the poor communities, you know, they, they're drawing off of property taxes of, of buildings and homes that are much less valuable. They're, they're more impoverished and they don't have as good of resources. They don't have as good as teachers. They don't have as good of buildings and, and all that. And he called it savage inequalities. And I, I've always been a, a proponent that when it comes to education, at least here in America, I don't know how it works in the UK and other places in the world, but at least here in America, we have to normalize that. We have to even that out where, you know, schools have a, a, a better or more fair, equitable slice of that financial pie, that income from the, uh, from the state or from the city or wherever it's coming. Yeah, it's really interesting, that, isn't it? And I find that what I'm, one of the things that I sort of grapple with quite a lot is that sense of how do you make that even? Um, and, and obviously there, there are various things that you can do in, in, a, in a system-led way. But I, I think the bottom line often I come to is the fact that 
we can only do whatever we can do today um yeah. and and so you sort of have that sense well i can have this conversation with this young person or yeah. i can have this conversation with this person and see if we can like I say have a different focus on where we get some funding from or, or projects or whatever it happens to be um so i'm, I'm sort of curious with your experience with that in terms of that sort of minutiae of the conversation and the little things you can do compared to that like I say that whole system change where you can make yeah. things much more equitable if we could indeed sort of have that magic wand yeah well the bottom line it, it, teaching itself is a compassionate adventure it's 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 about empathy it's about understanding your students it's about uh, uh, coming into a relationship with them and helping them to uh, to see things in a different way whether it's simple math or it's a history problem or it's a sociological question you know whatever it might be uh, you know but there is this disconnect I see with a lot of teachers today, uh, you know, and I saw it with my own teachers. It's not something that's new. You know, I think it's, I think it's always been there. It's, it's, it's been there at least for a long time, as far back as, as I know, uh, this disconnect. And it's, it's, there's a focus on the curriculum. There's a focus on getting, as you said, through the lesson and, and teaching to the test, that becomes the, uh, the driving um, evaluation of what is good teaching. So, you know, I, I, in fact, I got criticized for that, Mark. Uh, I, had, um, uh, I had several of my uh, classes where my students performed very well. You know, I was, they were, there were, there were classes where I had maybe one or two C's. You know, everything else was B's and A's. And I was accused of uh, inflating their grades. And I went, no, wait a minute now. You know, they, I, I'm actually, and most of my students would agree with this, I'm a fairly difficult, hard teacher. I don't grade very easily. I, I want you to, I want to take you to the next level. I have a personal interest in your success. And I've actually taken students that were below average and made them above average. And I did that not by lowering the bar, but by raising the bar. And so my students, they often feel that. But if I'm compassionate, if I'm interested, if I'm engaging, if I'm attractive as far as my presentations and my communication style, and then I care about them as a student, it's amazing how they will, they will be uh, drawn to that. And, you know, but I was accused of, of inflating the grades, giving everybody A's and B's. Uh, by other professors who had students who they were given F's to and D's to, below average grades. And, and I said, well, wait a minute. I'm actually doing my job as a teacher, and you should expect that a good teacher will produce good students. And you should expect a great teacher will produce great students. And guess what? Great students get great grades, you know? I always told myself at the end of a semester or the end of a term that when I wrote out those grades, that's the grade I get for teaching this particular student. If that student got a C in class, is that good enough for me? Or could I have done better with that particular student? You know, very personal. I, you know, uh, and, and there are some teachers that just, they totally reject that idea. And then they, and that's fine. You're, you're welcome to your own philosophical assumptions as far as the educational process. But for me, it was about coming into the world of the student. And I say that because I was, I was an average student. I was a below average student in many of the educational disciplines growing up. 
I had one teacher that looked at me and said, your last name starts with a C and you'll always be a C, which is average. You're going to be average your whole life. Well, okay. That was her assessment of me. Uh, she, she looked at me, she saw where I lived. She, she knew my family. She knew my economic situation. She knew that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be, you know, I was just average in intellect, but I look at every student as being a potential Rhodes scholar. You know, I look at every student as, as being someone that not only can achieve, but can achieve greatly. And my job is just to figure out how to get them there. And I worked at the university level. I worked at, in higher education. So I had a lot of students that I had to kind of work out the kinks of because they came into my classes all messed up from public education because they already believed that they were in this particular box. And I said, you don't have to stay in that box. You don't have to stay in that box. That's a box that somebody else created for you. Let me show you a new world. And, you know, once I got this, I have a, I have one student. I'll just give one anecdote and then we can, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up here. But uh, you get me lecturing and I love to do this. But uh, I had one student. I remember her first year. She was a D student. Um, in fact, at one point she was failing my class. And I went to her at mid-semester and I said, listen, um, I don't like the way this thing is going. And she said, I don't like it either. I just don't understand it. I said, well, I'm going to help you understand. Okay. I'm going to, I want to work with you and help you understand. And so I started to pour myself in. I, I actually put her on a, a bit of a, a, what I call a learning contract where in her case, she had to sit at the front of the class from that point on, she had to ask, uh, two or three questions during class. And if she didn't get to ask the questions because of other things going on, she had to leave me two or three questions she wanted to ask about the material. Uh, and her grades slowly kept creeping up as we tested her. And by the end, she was performing at A and B level and corrected her C and D to a good strong C plus B minus grade. The amazing thing is today, where is she at? She is a teacher today. And she teaches in a very high-end school. She's very successful at what she does. And I look at her and I think about, well, I remember when. But I could always see within, her name's Amy. I could always see within Amy who she could be. And that's my job as a teacher. And how do you do that kind of, which I love, that personal education? Because it is about, like I say, the relationships. That's one of the things that comes across the most here on, on the show, I think, that we hear. But how, how do you do that and also then, like I say, have a class that you're, you're, you're working with and progressing as well? Is it about the the one-to-one the -one quiet conversations in between class? Is it about sort of being able to incorporate it into the whole session? So well, let me know about that. Yeah, it, obviously, it, it means I have to be more attentive and more engaged outside the class. That, that, that you know, again, professors, we teach uh, maybe three hours a week, you know, a particular class. We get them three times a week for, for an hour each session, and then they're gone. But I would spend time down in the... Um, in the cafeteria, having lunch with the with the students, I would go to their ball games. I would sit in the in the bleachers and watch them play ball, and or hang out with the students. and And a lot of times, it was it was odd that a, a teacher was actually taking that much interest in them. And for some, it took them a while to get acclimated to it. But I never pushed myself. I never I never you know made it made them made it push myself to the point where they felt uneasy. I just showed up. I just decided that I was, I wanted to know, honestly know 
and and learn their story, understand who they were. And most students, a lot, I should say, at least here in America, many students don't have a teacher that takes that type of personal interest in them. And here's the thing, it takes time to do that. You, As a teacher, you do have to invest some time outside of class. But I got to tell you, the payoff is, is amazing. Um, you know, yeah, I have to spend a few extra hours outside of class, or I may have to go eat in the cafeteria with the students rather than hanging out in the teacher's lounge and eating with all the other, all the other teachers. Um, you know, but the conversations and what's fun is you actually get to hear how they're thinking about you. A lot of times they have a question they'll ask you right there. You know, you said this in class, is that what you meant? And I go, no, that's actually not what I meant. You know, let me, let me teach you a little bit better what I meant because misunderstanding can also create problems as far as uh, future test taking, if we're not careful. Um, but yeah, that, that personal touch does require time. Yeah, and and I, and I think that breadth was really important, and it's certainly something within my teaching I I sort of realised was important in terms of that. I don't want my first conversation to be, "Did you practice?" in you know in in, a, in our sort of musical lesson, as it were, or 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 something which is necessarily directly related to what it is we're going to be doing. And I often only have sort of half an hour a week. But it's much more about, oh, I remember you saying that you were doing this or you were doing that, or you know, I know you um you had you like I say you had a ball game, how did that go or whatever? And it just sort of opens that, like I say, that communication and that's yeah. that sense of we're both here as humans. I'm interested in your life and how because that fits in with what you're gonna be doing with me as well. Absolutely. And and, and to give a broader and a more um a flyover look as far as how I did this, you asked how this might be a good time to introduce what I call the, the six needs, uh, the human needs. And once I grasped this and once I started to employ this and it took me probably 10 years to master it uh, to the point where I felt like, okay, this thing really works. But you know, when you're hungry, uh, your stomach will growl. There'll be a movement down there in the tummy that that's saying, feed me, feed me. Well, human beings, we have, a growl within our soul for certain things. Uh, There's certain things that we need and we need other people to give them to us or to create environments. And what I've learned is if you create these environments, it becomes naturally attractive. And when people get into these environments, they don't want to leave these environments. They want to stay in these environments. They want to continue to remain in these environments. It actually empowers them to be better. They go further. They think more creatively. They're, they're more insightful. Everything happens. So you think the acronym I've used is the word growls. Just like your stomach growls when it's hungry, here are the six uh, needs. The first one is G, which stands for grace. You know, I think it's a spiritual need that we all have, but deep down as human beings, we all hunger for an unconditional environment. That's what grace is. It's a, it's an environment where there's surprise, there's blessing, uh, there's, a, there's a richness to it, there's a beauty to it. And I got to tell you, of the six needs that I talk about, this one is probably the one that's the most difficult to, to master and to to work because grace works against all the the policies grace works against all the the rules that we have you know we are very good at teachers at being lawmakers and law abiders and judges and juries and all that that's the easy part of teaching grace works totally beyond that it works outside of that uh, the band U2, one of my favorite bands out there, uh, they have a, a song called Grace. And the lyric says that grace works outside of karma. 
you know? And I've always loved that line because that's what I'm trying to say. Grace works outside of karma. Karma is you, you, you act this way, you're going to get this. Well, grace basically comes along and says, you know what? You act this way, I'm still going to work with you. I'm still going to be there for you. I'm still going to give you beauty. I'm still going to give you love. I'm still going to give you joy. I'm still going to give you peace. I'm going to, I'm going to still teach you whatever that looks like. Now that's the hard one. The rest of these kind of flow fairly easily and they're fairly applicable and, 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 and you can think of a lot of ways for hooks on them. The R is relationship. Deep down as human beings, we long to belong. We, lo we long to have conversation. We long to have connection. We long to collaborate. We long to commune. And those, those words uh, all have meaning to me. Is my class a conversational class? Or is it just me talking? You know, is my class a collaborative class? Or is it just me telling you what you need to do? Is my class a communal class? Do we see each other at times? And, and I'll tell you, a great teaching strategy that I use is I don't stand up. I actually sit down with my students. I find that when I sit down, get on their level, we have more of a, of a conversation. I find that if I, my class is small enough, that I will try to create a round class. Instead of rows, I move to rounds, you know, a circle, because circles create better conversation. Relationship. If you don't belong, it's so long. And our job is to create those connections. The O is ownership. This speaks to the human need for choice, for contribution, and ultimately for control. Deep down, we're all control freaks. We want to be large and in charge. You know, we want to have, uh, we want to be empowered. So this speaks to that idea that, that we have as teachers. Sometimes we have to let go of what we want in order to help the class develop their own choices and, and critically think in their own ways. The W is worth. Deep down, we all want to know, what am I worth? You know, what's the value of my life? You know, and and that value is something that I think, you know, that comes through affirmation, that comes through uh, encouragement, of course. But it's more than just being uh, valued that we look for. We want to be validated. You know, am I good for something? Do I have, do I have the skills? Do I have the talents? What, what is it that makes me special? What makes me unique? And this is part of the problem with a lot of our um, strategies that we use to discipline and class, manage our classrooms is we treat all the students the same. The greatest change in my own teaching philosophy happened when I started to look at every student as different. They had different needs. They had different experiences. They had different journeys. They had different educational backgrounds. They were not all the same. And yet we treat them too many times like they're all the same. And we, we trick, we reward them, we bribe them, we do everything we can to get them to do what we want them to do, but we treat them all the same to do it. And I think that's problematic. If you understand this area of worth, developing worth, helping them to see their worth, it treats each one as an individual, a special human being on their own. And what's interesting about that is you just focus on those four power, I call those the power needs, grace, relationship, ownership, and worth, G-R-O-W, that spells grow grow. That's how we grow a student. That's how we grow their attention. That's how we grow their affection. That's how we grow their desires. That's how we grow their discipline to do what, what, whatever it is we're teaching them. The last two uh, environments, uh, the last two needs that every uh, uh, person has, 
student has. The L is laughter. They want to just have fun. You know, this whole idea that education has to be a serious thing that we never, uh, you know, we, we never laugh at that education. And, you know, the British, the British, you guys are serious people. I mean, let's be honest. There's nobody, you, your, um, your accent is wonderfully serious. I love that. And maybe that's, you know, as Americans, we kind of, we kind of have a more frivolity on that, but, um, and, and by the way, I don't say that to be offensive. I just say that because it's, it's you know, I think you recognize <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> there is a seriousness. I mean, yeah, I wish I could, I could carry off the, the British accent. I just, I just can never do it. But that, you know, that, that, that's, that solid, you can see where that, that comes from. Laughter though is so key to the learning. When we laugh, as we learn our, our, our minds are literally lighting up like a city street at night. They're just they're just lighting up. The synapses are connecting. Uh, we think deeper. We think more critically. We think more creatively. Uh, so bringing laughter into the classroom that's one of the first things I always look for when I go into a classroom. Where what are the smiles? What's the smile factor? Are the students enjoying this? The last one, the S, is security. We have to create a secure environment for learning to happen, you know, and these are primitive needs, by the way, laughter and security are primitive needs. Uh, they are the needs that have to be in place for learning to even get started. Is this a safe place physically, emotionally, spiritually? Is this a safe place for, for us to gather, but is it also going to be an enjoyable place? If you can just create an enjoyable, safe classroom, you're going to be on your way then to then pursue these deeper needs of grace, relationship, ownership, and worth. So that's what I've done. When you ask me the big question, how do you do it? I focus on these environments and I call them environments. They're, they're all about creating a, a place that, that, that attracts and retains. Now I can stop right there and let's chat about those. What do you think? Well, I, I was, I was just thinking sort of, sort of reflecting on, on my students and, and how I sort of come across within those different areas. And I think you're, I think what's really interesting is like I say, it's the individuality that you bring, but also like you say that the, the young person brings as well, because, you know, if you take laughter, for example, I've, I've got one people I was teaching today and their sense of humor is wicked. Um, and it's probably not the conversation I'd have with, with another student, but you just know that, you know, it, it's what, you know lights them up and they want to be able to to have that sort of that sort of fun on, on, on that level but like you say but in a secure way you know and, and in a yeah. safe place where they sort of know how that how that is and I think that gives you the the freedom I think that's the other thing I'm, I sort of heard there was the the freedom to then take it in the direction that you want to because you're like I say it's the, the the individual human need and everyone you know everyone has different needs and different things where they need that extra bit of support or that extra bit of knowledge or that extra bit of something which draws them out. And it, I, I was just sort of seeing it as like a sort of a markers or, or a sort of a, a push button for levels where you want, some of them are going to be intensified a bit. Some can be pulled back. Some are just going to happen naturally. Um, but like I say, different for every person, but as long as you're aware that that's where all of these different areas are, then you've got a much more, um, a much more secure starting point to enable that to happen organically, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, there's a, 
a movie I used to show my teachers. I, I, I trained teachers, obviously, to be teachers. So I used to show have them watch uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Do you, are you familiar with that movie? Um, it's a, yeah. I think it's from the 90s. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit dated now, but it's about a music teacher like yourself who uh, teaches as students uh, through the years, as you will. Um, but one of the scenes in that movie has always captured me. He's got this little gal who I think she's trying to learn how to play the the flute or the saxophone or something. And she's just having all sorts of problems with the breathing of it and the blowing of it. And, and it's just not, she's hitting the wrong, wrong notes and it's frustrating to him. And he asked her two questions. Uh, well, he, he asked her one question to get started. He says, is this any fun for you? And she says, no. He says, it's not fun for me either. And I have always been captivated by that question. What a great question to ask at that moment. Because I talk to a lot of teachers, and that's one of the questions I ask them. The reason why they're getting out of education, here in America, there's a massive exodus of teachers leaving the education profession. The number one reason they're giving right now is it's not fun anymore. They get paid plenty. It's just not fun anymore. And I go, oh, you know, what if we could make education fun again? And I think the only way you can do that, uh, that type of level is you got to get back into, uh, you know, into that individual, you have to feel like this is, this is working. Um, the second thing he did with her, I thought was interesting was, uh, he, he said to her, he said, listen, let's shift this a little bit. Um, what's, what's something that, and I think he said, what's something that you really like or, or find beautiful? And she said, the sunset. I find the sunset. He said, then play the sunset and close your eyes. Imagine yourself at the beach and just play the sunset. And when she did that, she didn't miss the note. You know, now I know it's just a movie, but I got to tell you in my own uh, work with students over you know, 40 years of working with students. Now, when I've taught them how to play the sunset, whatever it is that they're learning, <laughs> whether it's a, a history or, or math or, or, uh, you know, gym, geography or, or, you know, whatever, learning to play, whatever, you know, when they learn to play the sunset, anything's possible. I think as soon as you take away the right and wrong, it has to look a certain way because the, the beauty of, yeah. of the sunset analogy is the fact that that sunset for her is probably a different sunset to yours. And they might yeah. both be beautiful and they might both be amazing, but all I'm doing is, is I'm I'm interpreting it, I'm sharing it, I'm I'm bringing you into my world, and that gives you, like, say, the safety and all those other things that you were talking about there. And then it's just an expression, and then, mm -hmm. like I say, that's when real real learning, real sharing, and, and and amazing things can happen. And I think it takes, I guess, it takes a little bit of trust in yourself, and like you say, knowledge and understanding of that. But I think that's why I love doing the podcast so much because you know it's when you hear these things and you can see. Ah, oh, that that you know, there's something there to make me think about. I mean, it's even for me here. There, there's one pupil that I've got who is absolutely loving what he's doing, and he couldn't be more into it. And there's just certain bits of what he needs to do, which he's really struggling with, and he doesn't necessarily know he's struggling too much. There's there's a little disconnect there somewhere, and and you start last couple of weeks, I sort of started to feel like there's a bit of a struggle there, and and you know, bringing in that fun idea, I just suddenly thought, you know, how can I just change my approach or my thought process or give give it a, an, an out which is still going to give him what he needs but in a completely sort of three 360 yeah. or 180 sort of different approach yeah and i always say part of part of the way you can do that is is get outside the classroom 
figure out a way to get outside of the environment that you already you're in because that environment sometimes becomes the norm and if you've created a uh, an environment that for lack of a better word is unfun you know it's going to be hard for a student to come into that environment and be fun when it's been unfun before so sometimes just simply going outside i remember one time we had a <clears throat> i was working with um with uh, some teenagers and we were doing a Bible story of some sort. This is one of my, one of my uh, church stories here, but we were, we were going to Bible story about uh, uh, three men who basically lowered a, a paralytic down through the roof of a church or of a, of a building down to be healed by Jesus. That was the story. And when we got together to have the, the, the talk about it, only, only a few kids showed up. I think we only had maybe three or four kids show up for that night. And it was like sitting inside this big classroom talking about this little story didn't make any sense at all. And they were already starting to yawn a little bit. I said, hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's do something different today. So we went and I got the I got out the ladder and we literally got up on top of the building of the church. And we talked about the story up there on the top of the building of the church totally different perspective, but they had so much fun crawling up there and, and we could do that. You could do that with a few kids. You can't do that with a lot of kids, but with a few kids, you could do that. And there were a lot of people that wagged their fingers at me. Oh, shame, shame, shame. You shouldn't let kids crawl around the church. I said, you know what? No problem with that. I don't think God's going to have a problem with that one, but it, it totally shifted how they viewed me as far as a teacher, but also how they viewed the learning. Learning can happen in different ways, but if you can get them outside the norm, that's that's very helpful. Yeah, I love that. And I, I just think, you know, the buildings, the vessel, whatever it happens to be that you're doing, they're there purposefully to help you. And yeah. <laughs> we, I think we've got very structured in our idea of, of what that looks like and probably to the detriment, like say, of the learning itself. Right. I, I, are you familiar with flipping the classroom? Are you familiar with that concept? They call it flipping yeah, the classroom. Yeah, a little bit. It's a big... It's a big uh, uh, idea over here in America. And, you know, I actually kind of like that idea where, you know, the classroom itself becomes a place where we, we, um, we learn the, we learn the procedures, but then we, our homework, you know, when we go home, that becomes where we do, where the real learning happens. That's, that's where, you know, the testing really happens. Um, and for me, I eventually grabbed, you talk about testing. I moved away from, uh, I guess what we would call the, the paper test, a long time ago. Uh, I, I don't, I don't very rarely do I use a paper test. Uh, and if I do, it's usually with um, maybe a, to test something on more of a historical nature where I, I'm looking for them. Do they know the person or do they know the event? Uh, can they describe that? But I found essays work a whole lot better for that anyway. And you can do that through a paper uh, and such. But what I moved to was projects. I now have my students do projects. Um, take, for example, a book report, or you know, I have to write a book report. You have to read a book and write a report. Well, why have them do that and turn that into you when they can write that and go to Amazon and post their review on Amazon about that book? I mean, make it a little bit more um, useful for them. Um, or, you know, I, I was teaching some students um, about how to teach, you know, how to be teachers. So their project, we actually took them and we went on a trip to work with some kids down in Mexico, and we just taught the kids all week long. We just did a teaching journey with the kids. That was their final exam. I got them, and I wanted to see how well they could teach and how well they developed their lessons. And 
and do it. That was a whole lot better than a final exam on, you know, give me the three reasons why you have objectives on your, on your lessons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and you mentioned books there. We should, we should, we should sort of talk a little bit about your, your gen tech book. How, where did that fit into, like we said, this sort of broad uh, lifestyle that you had and, and what were you trying to get across with that? Well, I, you know, I've been as a youth pastor and, and later a youth ministry professor, I, I was doing a lot of generational analysis. In fact, I, you know, in some ways, this book is 30, 35 years in the making. It came out in 2020. And it is, um, it is distinctly an American story. I will tell that to you and your audience. It's distinctly American. But uh, I, I think your UK audience would find a lot of similarities as far as, as, far as how it plays out. Uh, because I think your path technologically is very similar to America, at least in the in the 20th century and 21st centuries. Uh, it's an argument to get away from the classic labels that we throw on generations. Uh, here in America, we call them boomers and Gen Xers and millennials and Gen Z, which is a th- those are all very lousy. You know the alphabet labels. In fact, they're they're starting to call the new generation being born since 2010 the alpha generation. In other words, we're just going back to the beginning of the alphabet. And you know, when we start naming our our generations, like we named COVID, you know, COVID uh, um, different strains of the COVID. Uh, yeah, I think we got a we got a serious problem. I argue, and very simply, that we have certain technologies that are popping all the time and there are technologies that tip and these technologies that tip in other words they find social um, acceptance and social use these technologies are tipping about every 10 years we have a new technology that is a major enough technology that it's tips and generations as we come of age we come of age between our 10th and 25th birthday so in that window, that 15-year window, whatever technology is tipping tends to really mark us for life. It kind of tattoos our generation. So, for example, when you look at those individuals born in the 40s and the 50s, you know, they were defined by vinyl records and um, early space technology. Um, television was their big ones. When you look at uh, what we classically call Gen X, born in the 60s and 70s, it's late space technology, but it's also video game technology. It's uh, cable television technology, at least here in the American story. Uh, When you get to the millennials born in the 1980s and 1990s, the technology now is the personal uh, computer, uh, the cell phone, uh, and the... um, uh, the internet, you know, those technologies really define that millennial. And, and so it's not about throwing a tag on them, a label on them, a marketing label is a lot of times what these are. It's about seeing these generations through a lens that really helps us understand how we communicate, how we interact, uh, and how we relate to one another. So it's the story of who we really are. That's what the book's about. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And it, it really kind of when when you sort of you see it and you picture it in, in those particular ways, I think everyone listening, no matter what generation they're from, can can identify with it really, yeah. really clearly. Well, and I I start out the book uh, historically. I start out in 1900 because the case that as I started to look at technology, it's interesting. There's been more technological change since 1900 than in the entire history of the world. 
So let's just throw that out right there, right since 1900. So that's where I start with the book. And I look at everything from uh, the airplanes and, uh, you know, the automobile. And by the way, the British, the UK gave a lot of significant contributions to things like the automobile, uh, even rockets and stuff. The Europeans, you know, Germans had a lot to do with the rocket story. They got us up in space. Uh, we probably would not be in space, would not have put a man on the moon. At least America would never have done that if it hadn't been for a German. You know, and you know, it's just it's just amazing stories. And that's what I do with the with Gentech is I just tell the stories. And again, it's distinctly American because I felt like that was the context that I could relate to the most. But for my international audiences, I, I've been told several have read it and they, they say it has a lot of similarities to their own context uh, as well. So that's good. And you've talked a lot about um kind of creating the atmosphere the environment the, the situation to help to help people learn but I, i'm interested to know is there, there's a piece of advice that you were given which has made a big difference to, to to your life and actually probably even more importantly um is there a piece of advice you'd give your your younger self now because i'm always fascinated by that because i know it's very easy to do that but when you're younger you don't necessarily take it on board but then the flip side of that is that if you never hear it you you never know it so uh, yeah. yeah tell me a bit about that I think for me, if I could go back and, and tell my younger self, uh, 15, 20, 25 years of age, I, I would say, first of all, just I just say two things. Be you. Learn to be you sooner. It took me, it took me 40 years of my life to figure out who I was. Be you. you know? And secondly, be real. You know, authenticity comes through vulnerability. And a lot of us, we have shame stories. A lot of us have guilt stories. A lot of us are, are victims. I'm a victim. I mean, I lived that for a long time because I could, I could look at my, victim, uh, my victimhood and really I could claim it. I was abandoned by my mother. You know, my father uh, emotionally and physically abused me. I grew up with grandparents. I had no idea. You know, I just had all sorts of issues in my life that I could look back on and I could say, well, hey, you know, that's why I am who I am. You know what I realized? I don't have to be that person. I'm not an abandoned kid anymore. I have a wonderful relationship with a beautiful wife and we have we have connection and, and we have this we have this relationship where I don't feel abandonment anymore. So for me to go back and deal with the shame of that and the guilt of that and, and the worthlessness of that is really going someplace where I don't need to go. It's going on a vacation to a land that's not necessary. So just be you, embrace the you that where you're at, and then secondly, just be real, you know, be authentic, because that's what attracts people, you know, that's what draws people to you anyway, is your authenticity. Absolutely, because you, you want to really have a conversation or a connection with somebody based on like say who you are because that's that's the reality of how that is and i think that that sort of brings us really nicely from what you said before about the sense of it's very easy like you say to put yourself in a box but also to have been put in a box like you say whether it's a teacher or, or mm. your environment or whatever and i think when you can just sort of smash all those things out <laughs> like you say it gives you that blank canvas but i mm. think i think going back to your sort of growls idea is the fact that 
what that does is it shows you all of these different things when they raise their heads a little bit in terms of, oh, yeah, here's I need a bit of safety. I need a bit of laughter in this. Or actually, you know, all of these different elements are going to then mean that I've got that self self-assurance, that knowledge or or that sense of even just knowing that, oh, I'm heading back in this mm-hmm. direction of what I've historically told myself or whatever. And so I think, again, sort of that acronym just really works so brilliantly. Yeah. So yeah, it's a well, humbling process becoming real. You know, you yeah. have to, you have to be, you have to be willing to, I have failed a whole lot more. I'm a writer. I have failed and lost and gone backwards more than I care to want to think about. But it, every one of those failures, somebody asked me the other day, are, do, you, do you have any regrets? I say, you know what? I really don't have many regrets because I could regret all those failures, but each one of those failures taught me something about myself to improve myself. So how could I regret that? <laughs> absolutely and, and i think i think that's a really key thing to finish on there because if we can have that is the backbone of what we're doing within our our learning and our schools and our system of that sense everything is just a progression everything's a learning experience and we can do it differently or we can repeat it if that's what we need to do mm-hmm. but that then gives us the environment we need to know that it's always going to be different tomorrow and we can progress in whichever way we can and like I say, in this sort of technical technological world, you know, the answers are everywhere. They might it might be your teacher, it might be someone in your street, but it could also be someone from around the world because you know, as we are here having this wonderful conversation, you know, many thousands of miles apart, it's it's there at your fingertips. So, Rick, thank you so much for sharing your time and your yeah. wisdom. It's been absolutely fascinating, and and yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure myself. Thank you, and uh, uh, enjoy the day. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.